Welcome to the Sui Generis Show, your unique perspective on everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be catching up on the aftermath of the insurrection at the United States Capitol, including a look at the pretrial detention of the rioters and the black DC police officers who warned of racism within the force before the attack on our nation. We will also be looking at the civil rights case recently filed by the ACLU in Columbus, Ohio. During segment two, we'll be exploring the relationship between the Eighth Amendment and the death penalty, and why the Supreme Court of the United States decides the controls and the limitations on what the states can do with the death penalty. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Follow us on all of our social media channels and look to the Law Office of Brian Jones for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week the reports of the arrests of the alleged and suspected terrorists all over the news? And one in particular that demanded and received to be served organic food while in custody during the initial court appearance. Well, yes, I did. And actually, I even saw a brief news clip of his mom saying, he gets really sick if he doesn't have organic food and he's got to eat. And so, you know, I know people are making fun of it, but he has rights, right? I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, what, what are your thoughts on this? Because you've probably dealt with something similar to this before. Well, you're right, Erica. This story has gotten a lot of mockery. It's important to remember that pretrial detainees have not been convicted of any crimes. They're entitled to the same constitutional protections that you and I are and that inmates are. It's a stark reminder that when somebody is taken into custody, it's not just their movement and control over their day-to-day -day activities that's, that's restricted. It's the loss of the choice of what you are going to eat, when you are going to eat what you will wear and how you will wear it, who and when you will talk to other people and how you'll fill your time and with what activities. These are the liberties that are at stake when the government accuses you of, of a crime and detains you. And I think it's important to note that any request can be made and all the more successfully when it's made through experienced defense counsel to make sure that individual needs are accommodated. Yeah, I mean, it, that's a really good point you make, but you do hear about some people getting more privileges than others. I mean, usually it's synonymous with white collar crime and they go to their very privileged um, prisons where they say it's like a, like a tennis club or <laughs> something like that. I mean, why doesn't everybody get the same privileges? Well, when you look at something like Club Fed, the, the reality of these institutions is that the government has, through Congress, decided that certain people have committed crimes and those crimes require detention, loss of liberty, incarceration as punishment. 
But the individuals that go to these institutions are the ones least likely to try and escape the institutions. They're the kinds of people that are willing to submit to the consequences of their actions, pay their debt to society without any trouble to the guards, without attempts to escape. So they get these extra privileges because they are determined to be by the Federal Bureau of Prisons, low risk offenders. Now, these sorts of institutions are not found at the state level. Um, they're really almost exclusively found at, at a federal level. Now, there are some private institutions that provide uh, state detainees and state um, incarcerated individuals with some additional privileges. Um, uh, you know, I can think of one in particular here in Ohio that allows, uh, allows the inmates to wear their own clothes that they bring in from the outside. They can sleep in a real bed rather than on a steel cot. Um, but individuals have to pay for that privilege. And it's once again, another example of the justice you receive is the justice you can afford. And how in America, there really is uh, a dichotomy of classes. And those individuals who don't have the financial resources uh, get treated worse than those that do. Wow. I mean, it, it's, and it's, it's terrible to hear that. And I mean, and, and also, I mean, if they had the right representation, they'd probably get more privileges, but, you know, as you said, it's not everybody does. So unfortunately it just doesn't always happen. Now in these special cases where this gentleman is getting special food, who's paying for that at this, at this point? So the federal programming through contracts with jails um, and the food providers um, is how the food gets into the institution. Um, so federal tax dollars are paying for the food. For those individuals that have specialized needs um, from a religious perspective, there are religious organizations that donate food um, and donate funds to institutions to make sure that, you know, halal and kosher meals are provided to inmates. In many situations, uh, the inmates themselves are paying for their room and board through the daily fees associated with a jail stay. And then, of course, the local taxes that support the particular jurisdiction that the facility is in. It sounds like they're getting the money from a lot of different places, but at least some of the people are getting what they need when they are, are waiting their trial. Absolutely. You know, and I think the other thing that it's important to consider is, you know, who is the authority holding the individual? In this case, it's the federal government, which comes with a lot of additional resources, a larger federal budget, and stricter constitutional scrutiny from federal district judges. Many federal pretrial detainees are still held in county jails, local, state, and, and county facilities, which are paid for through contracts that the federal government pays to the local entity to house their pretrial detainees. If somebody is convicted of a federal crime and receives a prison term, then that person moves on to a federal penitentiary. Um, but these federal pretrial detain detention centers are primarily local county jails. Um, unless you're talking about like an ICE and Immigrations and Customs Enforcement facility or Guantanamo Bay. Uh, but most frequently we're talking about a county jail. 
Second, the other thing that's really important to look at here is the involvement of the defense attorney in this particular case. You know, this attorney has used the tools of the system to provide effective um, accommodations for his client. Dietary restrictions are not a new concept to jail administrators, but they're not internally motivated, meaning the, the jails themselves don't really have any reason to provide these options short of a court forcing them to do so. And that's primarily due to uh, budget concerns and, and, and I think in, in a large and significant part, social control prerogatives. They want to you know, keep their thumb on the detained individuals by feeding them you know, processed you know, Vitablocks. Um, the strategy and documentation used to secure these accommodations is now going to be available across the country because this was such a, a widely publicized case. And I think a lot of accused pretrial detainees, their attorneys can take advantage of the work that was done for this individual to hopefully get a little bit more fairness uh, for people who, again, have not been convicted of any crimes. Wow. Well, I mean, certainly I think that if you haven't been convicted, you should be giving a lot more rights while you're waiting. Erica, did you also see this week, and to keep our focus on the attack on our nation's capital, the Black police officers of the Capitol Police Force have been talking about racism and white nationalism creeping into the force since 2001. Yeah, and you know, we talk about this in other areas of the country quite often on this show where racism is quite obviously present in these police officer units. And look, I'm just wondering, it's, it, it seems like more and more is becoming clear about the attacks that happened last week. And none of the information is great. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds like everything was planned ahead of time. What it looked like was that police officers were just letting people in. And I think some of the details are still fuzzy, but I'd love to hear what your take is on that. Well, I've been watching with amazement at the revelation of the involvement of the Capitol Police in the insurrection. Um, you know, putting on the MAGA hats, taking selfies with the insurrectionists as the people that they're sworn to protect, the senators and representatives of the United States Congress were terrorized while Capitol offices were vandalized. Um, you, the people's house was, was burglarized last week. Um, and the people that are supposed to protect us from that um, in, in many respects participated in that. Um, some of the officers have been arrested, some of them have been suspended, and investigations are ongoing. Um, but it wasn't just D.C. police officers that failed in their duties. Um, you may have seen this week the metadata dump that was collected from the right-wing social media app Parler uh, that has now been shared all over the internet. And the contents of that that uh, data grab includes details of a variety of law enforcement officers from all over the country who took the day off and decided to go participate in an armed insurrection against the United States of America. Uh, 
these officers in the DC Police Department, um, I think are incredibly brave individuals. Um, and they are obviously frustrated by uh, the fact that they've been reporting this kind of behavior and, and black police officers across the nation have been reporting uh, the infiltration of radical um, fascist ideas into their police forces for decades. I mean, in the case of the DC police, these were officially reported in 2001. And leadership has failed to take action on these warnings um, and failed to take any, any actions to protect Black, Indigenous, and people of color police officers. I mean, Erica, there needs to be continued investigation into the radicalization of law enforcement in America. Um, it's a problem. It's a dangerous problem. You know, what we saw on January 6th was a little taste of what can happen if the police decide they're going to take a side in a dispute that isn't the side of the law. I mean, it's incredibly scary. And I'm just wondering what can be done about these extreme right wing views that are in these law enforcement areas? Well, first we have to distinguish between an officer's First Amendment right to hold personal beliefs and their duty to their oath of office. Now, the rules of their agency govern what their official behavior is and what they say publicly. But individual officers absolutely have a right to vote how they wish, to protest if they want. Um, they can put bumper stickers on their car and fly flags from their front porch in the back of their pickup truck. They can engage in any method of protected free speech. But officers are citizens like the rest of us and will and should be held accountable for engaging in unprotected speech like true threats collecting obscenity, defamation, possessing child pornography, perjury, blackmail, and incitement to imminent lawless action. Officers always are subject to the administrative rules of their agency. So we've got legality, you know, officers are not allowed to break the law, but they also have administrative rules for how they are to behave in the public. Think of the same way, think of how uh, sports athletes are governed in what they can say and, and sometimes have consequences for the things that they say publicly. You know, you'll remember uh, it, was, it was only a year ago that LeBron James came out and spoke, spoke heavily against uh, the Chinese government and how he, he suffered significant backlash from that. He was fined as the result of it. He then walked the statements back and, and honestly went too far the other way, almost in support of the Chinese government. And then he had to walk that back again. You'll remember uh, the Houston Rockets president got in the same kind of heat um, about his comments about China. So you know, everybody really lives under some form of code of conduct as set forth by their employers and, and police officers are no different. You know, 
you can look no further than Virginia, right next to DC, to see officers who are facing serious consequences and are likely to lose their job for saying that they were effing proud of the behavior of the right wing crowd. Investigations are going to continue to uncover officers who facilitated the insurrection, who participated in the insurrection in violation of the law and in violation of their oaths as police officers. They will be identified. Some of them will be prosecuted and many of them will be stripped of the right to be a, a police officer. Lastly, Erica, I think this goes to the heart of the fundamental changes that need to happen in the recruitment aspect of American law enforcement. Remember that the vast majority of police officers have to have no more education than a GED to qualify to become a police officer. Now, there are many individuals out there who don't have high school diplomas, who don't have bachelor's or advanced degrees that are perfectly intelligent. But having the requirement of a high school diploma, I think is very important. It demonstrates a dedication and a, and a minimum standard of achievement. Second, the psychological evaluation needs to happen before any officer is handed a badge and a gun. It's absolutely imperative to determine if these people are true followers of a system that obeys the, the rights of everybody, or if they're adherent to a particularized ideal um, and, and they are going to follow their political wills in order to oppress those who don't think like them. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I was wondering, you know, why aren't they allowed to talk about their personal beliefs on the job? I mean, I know personally, I try not to say too much, um, and not when I'm here, obviously, <laughs> but um, in other areas of my life, I, I just, it's not worth the fight at Thanksgiving or it's not worth losing a client to, you know, really uh, go at it about what, what my views are versus theirs if it's the opposite. But um, I, I, I don't know if it's a similar reason for the police officers. Uh, you know, what would you say about that? You're the same reason that you don't voice those opinions on your private Facebook page are the same reasons that law enforcement officers are, are prohibited from doing so. The first is incitement. Police are guaranteed to raise people's tempers. And the only thing that, that makes people more uncomfortable than having the, being the target of a law enforcement investigation is religion and politics. And police officers arriving on a scene full of strangers and attempting to exercise control over those strangers through both verbal and nonverbal communication don't need the added volatility of, of injecting their personal political opinion. You know, this is why officers all wear the same uniform. They are a unified force. They don't have any differences and disagreements among them. And it's something that distinguishes, anything that distinguishes one officer from another is something that causes problems in the execution of their duties. You know, that subconscious perception of uniformity of thought 
if, if fractured, will thwart their ability to establish control over a situation and, and can result in the increase of the risk of violence. It can result in the increase of the risk of uh, additional unlawful and antisocial behavior. So police departments have made a policy decision that in this case is actually backed up by psychology and research. Now, the second reason is reticence, right? Disagreement over political opinion among officers is likely to disagree is is likely to reduce their engagement with one another in support of one another. You know, this is the reason that you don't bring up politics at Thanksgiving dinner, because the whole point of Thanksgiving dinner is is to bond as a family, and bringing up these political divisive topics only fractures the family. So just like that family, the police officers are, are not supposed to talk about their politics. Um, and if, the, if a witness that they have to work with has a, a differing political opinion, that witness can feel intimidated or threatened by their political opinions. They may be reluctant to speak to the police officers. They may be reluctant to participate in a prosecution. Um, so police officers you know, don't want to foster that, that disagreement. Lastly, but certainly not least, is the distraction. Focus on a political opinion can distract people from their primary duties, which is responding to an emergency situation. Now, whether that's responding paramedics, other officers, or a citizen that needs to uh, respond and, and act appropriately to oral guidance in an, in an emergency situation, uh, a police officer's key prerogative is to establish control and safety over these emergency situations and, and to act decisively to protect the people involved. So any distraction caused by a police officer, you know, voicing their political opinions or wearing political flags or, you know, wearing political pins is only going to reduce their effectiveness in these situations. So th there are a myriad of reasons why we don't let police officers um, you know, bring their politics into their profession. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense, keeps people more comfortable, I think. And as you said, it helps them execute the things that they need to do in their job. It helps them work better together and uh, it helps, you know, not cause the situation to escalate. So I, I agree. And those are all the reasons that I don't, I don't do it as do it either. Um, so that, that, that's great. Thank you for that information. Absolutely. And, and I think the, well, absolutely Erica. And the last thing I saw this week, or maybe the, the last big thing that we saw this week was that the ACLU filed a lawsuit against Columbus police officers alleging they assaulted and illegally arrested Nick Pettit when he was recording their activity from his own front porch. Well, this is a really interesting case and it's something we've talked about before. You know, what are the rights that you have? Can you record police activity? So what happened in this particular situation? Mr. Pettit witnessed SWAT activity at the house across the street from him. And what he saw disturbed him. 
officers were verbally and physically abusing family members. They had hit a teenager. They punched a teenager in the face. Um, so he stepped out on his front porch and began recording the officers. Now, the officers, having a record of their misconduct, were understandably upset. Nobody wants their illegal and, and violent activities recorded for everybody to see. So they ordered him to stop recording them and, and go back inside his house. Mr. Pettit knew his rights, and he continued to record the situation. The officers forced their way into his house. They assaulted him. They arrested him and put him in the Franklin County Jail for five days without ever issuing any charges. Ultimately, they did issue charges after long after the uh, rules-based time period for him to be provided notice and an opportunity to be heard by a magistrate. Uh, they filed misconduct at an emergency charges. And those charges were dismissed because there was zero evidence to support them. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. It's not in a good way. <laughs> I can't believe that something like that can still happen nowadays. What kind of charges were brought against the police officers after all of this happened? So this is a federal civil rights lawsuit seeking compensatory damages. He's, he's asking for money. The officers are accused of violating his civil rights and his attorney has used 42 United, United States Code 1983, um, which is the federal law that enacts and, and provides a civil rights lawsuit, a civil lawsuit for violations done by the government in violation of our constitutional rights. The officers have also been accused of the civil torts of assault and battery. So the, he has claimed that the officers have, have hurt him physically, and he's entitled to damages because of that. Now, only the officers in this case that, that actually assaulted him are named, not the entire Columbus Police Department. So there will be no injunctive relief. There won't be any uh, better training or change in rules or any agency-wide action taken as the result of this case should Mr. Pettit prevail in his suit. Oh, no. I mean, that sounds, doesn't sound fair. I mean, do we even have the right to record a police officer's activity? Absolutely, Erica. The Supreme Court of the United States has, has issued rules that say that in public, you can always record the police. You can always record the government. Now, that applies both to the police officers and, and really anybody that is in a public place. So think situations like protests, arrests, and the execution of search warrants um, in public. You can also record anybody on your own private property. So if a search warrant is being conducted on your house, you can absolutely record that process. Now, on somebody else's private property, you have the right to record, but may not have the right to publish as the property owner's rights then come into play. Within restricted or government property, audio and video recording is frequently prohibited, but there are a lot of circumstances where um, an audio or video recording can be permitted if the government is engaging in misconduct and your video recording or audio recording for the purpose of exposing that misconduct. 
So think about situations like inside the jail or a prison or in a federal or state government facility. If you have a question about whether your right to record exists in a particular time and location, you should absolutely talk to an attorney. Most attorneys will take the time to sit down with you and have this conversation free of charge. Um, we're kind of nerds about stuff like this. So if, if the attorney is involved in civil rights, they're probably going to be willing to sit down and have this discussion with you. Um, and remember that the advice that the information that I'm providing today is about Ohio. And Ohio is a one-party consent state. Recording video or audio in other states can have different rules because a lot of states require both parties to consent to the recording. Now, that two-party consent, as it's called, does not apply to law enforcement. But to people that aren't law enforcement, it does apply. And you're going to need to check the rules of your local jurisdiction to know whether you're allowed to record in those situations. And I think that's really good advice um, at this point. Like, I, Just to let everyone know that's watching, if you know somebody that has any kind of criminal matter or questions that they might have, I just feel like you should give <laughs> Brian Jones's office a call. I mean, they obviously care enough to stay on top of all the current events, all the newest laws. Um, things change fast. And if you don't know what you're doing, you could really end up ruining your life. So find somebody that really knows what's going on and knows the best strategies. And uh, I don't know anyone better than Brian Jones. So um, definitely give them a call. They'll take care of you. Thank you for those kind words, Erica. With that, let's move on to segment two. Recently, we discussed the Trump administration's race to execute as many inmates as they possibly could before the expiration of President Trump's term. And sadly, Lisa Montgomery, the only female on the federal death row, who had been granted a reprieve just last week, was executed by the federal government on January 13th of 2021. Ms. Montgomery's case was inspected internationally as a prime example of the tragedy of the death penalty in the United States of America. I mean, it, it sounds like a really sad story. Uh, can you let us know what happened in this case of Lisa Montgomery for those of us that haven't heard? Ms. Montgomery's case was internationally discussed in the media because of the circumstances that led to her homicide. She was severely physically and mentally abused by her mother and stepfather. She was the victim of human trafficking and sex slavery throughout her childhood. She ultimately mar married one of her rapists and had several children with him who were removed from her care. In 2004, she was convicted of murdering a young pregnant woman and removing that woman's unborn child via makeshift cesarean section, kidnapping the child and trying to pass it off on her own. She has long suffered from severe mental illness since her childhood, and obviously due to the significant trauma that she, she suffered as a child. This case is, in my opinion, a tragedy precisely because both the victim and the perpetrator suffered so terribly. It's an example of why the death penalty 
is such a polarizing tool in this country and in the world at large. The case is especially difficult for the lawyers who were involved, who filed a variety of motions to try and save Ms. Montgomery's life. They had secured a 24-hour stay for a mental health evaluation that was never conducted. And then Ms. Montgomery was put to death by the United States government without ever knowing whether she was competent or whether she even understood why she was being executed. The state and the victim's family would say that justice was done. They're happy about her death. And they've waited for more than a decade for her to be killed in vengeance for the death of their loved one. And this is why the divide um, over the death penalty is so hotly contested, because there are those who feel that that revenge is, is appropriate and something that our government should take out on people. And there are those that say people who commit these sorts of crimes generally have major trauma behind their actions and therefore should not be held accountable with their lives. We can remove them from society, uh, but execution for a variety of reasons isn't the appropriate outcome. I mean, it's just one of the saddest stories you can hear. And you know, I agree with you. There, if somebody doesn't understand why and they've had a traumatic past, um, you know, there should be something done to help them. So you always hear about a lot of different types of murder. You hear about crimes of passion and you hear about people that plotted out forever. Um, but I don't know personally what type of murder would lead to the death penalty. Yeah, so you, know, you, you talk about like the heat of passion murder. Uh, that is, that's typically manslaughter, actually. It's, it's a lower crime even than murder because the person didn't formulate the thought process. Um, you know, think about the wife that catches her husband in bed with his lover and she kills them in that, in that moment without even thinking. She's so enraged by their conduct that she commits murder. Uh, premeditated murder, you know, the kind of murder that, you know, you said you, you thought about, you planned it out or even you thought about it for just a, a brief moment and you said, I'm gonna kill this person and then you did it. You know, that's standard murder. Um, and we're talking about, you know, frequently a life sentence. Um, you know, we're talking about something, you know, for Ohio law, we're talking about 10, 20, 25 or life without parole. You know, 10 to life, uh, I'm sorry, 15 to life, 20 to life, 25 to life or life without the possibility of parole. Um, Death penalty murder is that second category of murder with an aggravated circumstance. So there's gotta be something else that makes this particular crime exceptionally heinous. And, you know, Erica, that leads very nicely into, um, you know, why the Eighth Amendment doesn't protect us from execution. You know, the, the, the Eighth Amendment says, no cruel and unusual punishment. And what can be more cruel than murder um, or, or death at the hands of the government? What the Supreme Court did was back in Furman versus Georgia, the Supreme Court in 1972 invalidated every death penalty law in the country because it was applied to every, every murder, 
every single murder was basically death eligible. And so what states did in the 1970s and in the 1980s is they rewrote their death penalty laws. And they said, it's got to be murder plus. So murder in the course of committing another crime, murder in the course of uh, multiple murders, um, murder of a young person, murder of a police officer. Um, you know, there, there are a variety of what's called aggravating circumstances, particularly heinous murders, such as the one um, that uh, Ms. Montgomery is, was convicted of committing. You know, the, the circumstances of it are particularly grisly that enhances it and allows it to become uh, death eligible. And in Gregg versus Georgia, 1977, Georgia getting right back on that uh, death penalty horse after they got knocked off in Furman, uh, Georgia comes back and says, well, here's a new death penalty. And, and that's where they added these aggravated circumstances. And the Supreme Court then held that the death penalty is not per se, it's not in and of itself a violation of the Eighth Amendment. It's not in and of itself unconstitutional because it can serve some legitimate social purposes such as retribution. Um, and, and that time they claim deterrence, although we know today that the death penalty has no deterrent effect whatsoever. Uh, Supreme Court in later decisions started to carve out what is acceptable for the death penalty. Um, you know, today we're talking about murder plus aggravated circumstances exclusively. You know, back then we were talking about crimes like even rape um, in many states were death eligible. Uh, but today the Supreme Court has, has kind of narrowed that to the murder plus standard. So I always get a little bit confused about the, the Supreme Court rulings versus the rules that the states have to follow. Why is it that in the case of the death penalty, why is it that the Supreme Court can change what happens in individual states? So that's a great question, Erica. The 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution makes all of the protections of the rest of the Constitution apply to the states, as well as applying to the federal government. So when the Supreme Court reaches a new decision interpreting a constitutional right, all of the states have to follow that new interpretation if it is based on federal law. However, the Supreme Court provides the minimum standard of our constitutional rights, not the ceiling. And that means the Supreme Court sets the bare minimum rights that the states absolutely must guarantee and protect. But all of the states are free to create additional rights that they will choose to protect. Now, I know that there are groups out there that look to abolish the death penalty, and I'm curious if that's actually possible. It can, absolutely, but it has to be done on a state-by-state -state effort and, again, at the federal level. So states can eliminate the death penalty for state-based offenses, state-prosecuted offenses. 22 states have eliminated the death penalty. Um, Alaska, Illinois, New York, and Minnesota have all done so recently. Wisconsin was the very first state to eliminate the death penalty in 1853. Um, and the most recent was New Hampshire in 2019. 
Now, governors also have the authority as the head of their state and the state executive branch to eliminate the death penalty through a moratorium, meaning they just won't carry out the executions, um, as is the case presently in California, Oregon, and Pennsylvania. Now, on a federal level, Congress could pass a law eliminating the death penalty as a, as a consequence for any federal crime. The Supreme Court of the United States could reach a new interpretation of the Eighth Amendment and ban the death penalty. Or the president, as the executive officer, could issue a moratorium on death penalty cases um, and, and executions, as President-elect Biden has suggested he will do. Um, just as the current president has issued orders to accelerate and execute everybody as fast as possible on his way out the door. So it, it, there are a variety of ways that this can happen, um, but it's going to take a lot of work. Ohio is one of the states at the forefront of the battle to eliminate the death penalty. And um, a, a lot of federal litigation on the legality of the application of the death penalty is being conducted here. And I would encourage everybody to listen in next week as we discuss how the death penalty is, is imposed and the legality of that process. I look forward to hearing about that. That's gonna be a really interesting interview as was this one. Thank you so much for all of your efforts and information um, and helping keep us abreast on what's happening right now. Well, you are welcome. And thank you for joining me today, Erica. And to all of our listeners, I thank you as well. To stay informed about the latest updates on the hottest stories in civil rights, police and government accountability and the criminal injustice system, check out the law office of brianjones.com or Central Ohio Criminal Defense on Facebook. Look to Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at TLOBJ. And we will be back next week with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and the criminal injustice system, as well as that discussion of how the death penalty is imposed in a criminal prosecution, both by the state and the federal governments. Erica, my grandfather always said, when we parted ways, don't do anything I wouldn't do, kid. And to that, with all of my friends, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended.